Good day and welcome to What Scares Startups, the podcast that explores the fears, anxieties, and neuroses that beset founders of all shapes, sizes, and descriptions. I'm Matt Toner. I'm your host. I'm here with producer Mike. And we want to talk to you today about how startups can recognize, confront, overcome, and harness all those things that keep us awake at night. And to do so, we've got a large series of especially impressive guests that will unpack their wisdom, their learnings, the things that frighten them, and the things they've overcome. So stay tuned. This is What Scares Startups. So let's say you're one of those people. You're good at what you do. You're working at a big company, a successful company. People there, they like your thing. They like what you bring to the table. And you get to work on bigger projects than maybe you could otherwise do. And yet somehow it all kind of winds up feeling a little bit empty after a time. Maybe you can't quite flex those creative muscles in the way that you thought. Maybe there's something about the way the product is made that drives you a little bit bonkers. Or maybe you just don't want to do the big corporate thing for a while and you want to do your thing your passion project, your idea. Sound familiar? Well, it probably does. That's a very common origin story for a lot of people out there trying their first or their second company. Uh, these are folks, maybe like you, that know that they've got the skills to go back into a big company anytime they want to. So maybe it's time to try to do things a different way and see what they learn about themselves, about the industry they're a part of, and about just what it takes to do and run a business. And maybe that comes with a bit of hubris and maybe that comes with a bit of humility or maybe it's the reverse order, we don't know. But today we're gonna to plunge the depths and see what we find at the bottom. And we're gonna do that with our friend, Andrew Charnetsky, who is a very accomplished chap in the video game industry. He's worked on a lot of games you've probably played, probably a few that you haven't. He makes his home in the far northern reaches of Alberta and has a company called Only By Midnight. And he is one of those guys that has made that leap and made it successfully. Uh, and now is living life on the outside. So today we're going to talk to him about what that feels like once you've severed the cord and you've made it your own and now you're working on a project with people you like 100% and doing it in a way that is kind of maybe a bit uncompromising. And maybe that's a really interesting place to find yourself, especially as you move into the mid-career years. Without further ado, let's talk to my friend Andrew. So today we're here with Andrew Charnetsky a seasoned veteran, well-aged beef of a game developer in Edmonton, Alberta, which you might not have heard of. It is the birthplace of another great game company called BioWare, whose games you have doubtlessly played. Andrew has been in the space, as I mentioned, for nigh on 20 years. He co-founded Sirius Labs, and now he's leading his own venture called Only by Midnight, which he hopes to scale into a bigger and better and more world-dominating undertaking. Their first game has just hit the market called Curved Space. If you haven't checked it out, you should. And Andrew C. is joining us right now. Andrew, good morning. Great to chat with you again. It's been a while. Hello, Matt, and uh, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So before we go any further, let's get the plug-in right away for Curved Space because people can actually sample your work today, and that's often the best indication of understanding who they're thinking about or dealing with or partnering with. What, what can you tell us about Curved Space? Sure. So Curve Space is that hobby project that grew roots and turned into something real. It was something I've been poking at for, for a very long time. But in 2019, I dived into it pretty heavily with my wife, Jennifer. And we ended up going, hey, this thing's real. We need to do something with it. So we founded Only by Midnight in 2019, initially sort of as just an entity to wrap the IP of Curve Space. 
We ended up getting uh, some funding for marketing. We eventually closed a publishing deal with Maximum Games. And I'm happy to say it is now launched. It is live. It's on uh, all the consoles. So Xbox One, Series X, PS4, PS5. It's even on Nintendo Switch. It's digital as well as physical. So you can find it on GameStop, EB Games. Heck, I think it's even at Walmart. First time I'm ever excited to see a product at Walmart. Let's be honest. I was going to say, Walmart is the Everest of consumer retail. Good for you. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, Maximum Games has been awesome and has a, has a really good reach. Then also on Steam and Good Old Games. So it's out there. It's a fun arcade kind of classic top-down shooter, but with a weird 3D twist. And it really celebrates a lot of my philosophy in game design, in kind of pushing sort of math-centric concepts into something that's fun and interesting. It's got Jen's quirky little uh, trans-temporal space spider story, and uh, we're, we're really happy with it. So yeah, please check it out. You'll get a good sense of who we are as game developers. And that's basically the plan for our venture, is make more fun games and have fun making them. Excellent. Lovely story of a great start. But tell me, I mean, this was a side of the desk project when you started it, right? Curve Space wasn't sort of the let's raise the money, build the team, grow the empire. It was a passion project that you brought to life. Is that that's fairly accurate, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a tech demo, a tinkering, an idea. And it was one of these, like, I've got a few prototypes going back, but it would have been impossible in 2012. It would have been impossible 2015. And I, I ended up having some uh, downtime. Um, they didn't want to pay out the overtime I needed to ship this other project. So it's like, cool, I have Friday now for a year. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? And after the first couple, it was like, you know what? What about that hobby project? Let's uh, let's give it a shot. And uh, it, it really started to turn into something real. And I was planning on taking a sabbatical somewhere around 2019 to give it a, a push. But the whole world went crazy and ended up finding myself with way too much time. And so it's like, you know what? Let's Let's do this for real. Dived in with Jen. And that's been a fun ride. And since Curve Space, so actually in, uh, I think it was May 2019, we started looking at like, this is fun. This is not just a, let's get a thing out on the side, but what do we want to do with this? And we had a bunch more time on our hands thanks to COVID. And I knew a number of other really talented people as well. And so it's like, well, if I could get my dream team together, what would that look like? What would we work on? And we actually pitched round one to a Canadian Media Fund. We just wrapped up the prototype for that. And uh, we applied uh, for production funding with Canadian Media Fund, thanks to uh, your uh, your cohort, which has been awesome. And so we're waiting to hear back from that. And regardless of Canadian Media Fund, like we have Curve Space in the wild, and we are so excited to keep making games. And uh, hopefully that's Tragic Kingdom, and we'll see where it goes. This sounds great. This sounds like the fairy tale story, turning your dreams into reality and working with your friends and living the life. Thanks, COVID. But now I've known you a little bit, and you've, you've got a very reserved, composed manner in your dealings and a thoughtful way of speaking. But I'm going to suspect that under the hood, as you're transitioning from a passion project with your wife, being done in the basement kind of thing, into these bigger stages, these more ambitious projects, there must be, or perhaps there isn't, or perhaps there should be, some uneasiness about scaling and starting to build things in a more serious way and taking on partners and taking on money. What part of that actually gives you a bit of pause? Like what part of that feels a bit new or alien or a dash of the old imposter syndrome? What's the thing that keeps you awake at night? Uh, there, There's plenty. Um, it, it is not all just a fairy tale, uh, although I guess fairy tales often have monsters, so there we go. Um, <laughs> there's the technical ones, and I have some war stories there. Just fun things like, you know what? On one of the console dev kits, all of a sudden, on the pause screen, after 60 seconds, it hard crashes. 
We have no idea why. Nothing is interesting happening after that point in time. My code's not doing anything. Why is it doing that? And I'm not obligated to fix it now. So there's there's a bunch of that sort of technical stuff, sure. which is just part and parcel for game development. But mm. uh, that's more or less in your wheelhouse, correct? Like, yeah. you know, if if you're an auto mechanic and you get a flat tire, I mean, okay, it's a it's a drag, but fixing the flat tire for an auto mechanic is that kind of comes to the territory. I'm guessing that those things are in the more the irritation will get over it category as opposed to the other things that maybe, what are the things that maybe outside your comfort zone, the things that you're learning on the fly? Like, oh my gosh, I've got to do this now? Eh. So, so the only point I'd say is you're, you're right on, it is, it is par for the course and the sort of thing I'm, I'm used to, except never has changing that tire been like, oh, this tire actually doesn't fit and it is now an existential crisis for the business. <laughs> So that that's that is a totally different experience compared I, to the like, oh I got to solve the thing and if I don't whatever that's the company's problem <laughs> so it, it it does have a different flavor but that's a good uh, point it, that is a good point as you said the, the working through those at least on the technical side is is fairly straightforward so the the big questions come down to like okay and then you have the similar stress of the success of this product is is literally putting food on the table more so than just collecting a paycheck and and those but you know what we planned for some of that we we had a bit of savings and budgeted appropriately so again not like it's a different feel kind of being out there on the ocean on your own but at the same time it's it's if you're relatively prepared it's not the end of the world i'd say the two biggest questions come down to scaling and management and people and on the scaling side, one of the big things philosophically is we don't want to scale big. It's a, I've seen that, I've lived that life. I've gone from the spare computer in my parents' basement to 70 people downtown. And it's awesome. And I know what that is like. I know what the strengths are. I know what the weaknesses are. It's certainly on the plan B list if I need to go back to something like that. But it takes away from the agility of what I like to do. And there's just so much overhead and red tape and back and forth between departments. And it's not even a like Serious Labs was great, better than a lot of studios that I've seen and heard of. It's just anytime you have more than that, like one scrum team sized organization, everything starts falling apart. Well, not falling apart, but you end up having these interfaces where you get friction and confusion. And I see products like Hollow Knight where it's Three guys in Australia, or you look at like Celeste and it's made by uh, extremely okay games as a small team. And it's like, you look at these lean teams that are just able to do just pure magic. And and, and that's that's our ambition. But that also, it, it complicates things because you can't just throw money at the problem and mm-hmm. make it work. Those lean teams have to be firing on all cylinders and take a very specific skill set. The other so one you, is... You've uh, probably heard, just to cut in, you've probably heard of the, the Amazon rule of the two pizza team. Yep. Yep. So it seems like you're, you're basically following that philosophy. And for those that may not know, their rule is if there's a team that you can't feed late at night with two pizzas, it's time to build another team. It's time to keep that team small and focused and lean and nimble and really focus on small unit tactics, not worry about organizing the entire division. And there is some truth to that. And you see it as sort of there's a fundamental human network theory one. Like it's a when you and I are talking, my brain has to model you in order to have that conversation. Two people, one link. If we added another person, all of a sudden I'm modeling not just how I interact with both of you, but how you guys interact. And now we have three people, three links. You add a fourth and the links go up as that factorial. And you'll start to see that the number somewhere is like that five to eight and anywhere more than that. And you start to abstract. Mm -hmm. I I cannot have that level of integrated team with 20 people. 
Instead, I have to start collapsing them into a pseudo team. So it's not just the five people who are working in the other room as individuals. It's the marketing department, the accounting department, the art department. And it's natural, but at the same time, that's where you start to create these interfaces between teams, between departments. And that that's where there's so much friction and pain and management and overhead. And like it's necessary in order for 20, 30, 40, 50 people to function together. But it, it's a pain in the butt um, where it's like if you have that relatively lean, that, that one scrum team size, that one pizza, two pizza team, they can all be on the same wavelength and you can make something truly magic. And that's not to say you can't leverage other things. You can bring in, say, a bunch of contract art to spec or hire this sort of module here or stuff like that. Like there's ways to pull into that, but it's it's keeping that core very, very lean. So that's fundamental to this to the plan of the business. But it, it, it does lead some challenges structurally, organizationally, as well as like it, it necessitates a very high performing core team of very passionate people, which are hard to find. And also like a friend of mine goes, you know what, your biggest risk is you have a team made of perfectionists. <laughs> and uh-huh. it's a, uh, that's a valid criticism. It's a, it's a, our biggest strength, but it, it, it's a weakness as well. Well, you and I have talked about this a little bit, right? And, you know, I won't get into any sermon about perfection being the enemy of good enough, because I think you, you've really embraced this philosophy, like even going back to our earlier conversations, you and I, before we first came to know each other, you were holding very tightly to this. If it takes longer, it takes longer. You know, if we, we don't want to scale, we don't add all these people. It's almost like an artisanal approach in some ways to how you think of the development of your product. It's we want very like-minded people working in a very intimate, if during COVID, dispersed setting uh, around a product where we don't have to worry about a shared vision among 100 different developers we can all look at each other to the left and to the right and to know we're on the same page. And that is different in the game space. That is atypical, I believe. It's You see it a lot on the smaller side where it's just out of necessity, but it's a it, it's kind of the dream for a lot of the uh, former AAA devs that I've talked to. But it's a dream in it's not easy to set up. And it's not the sort of thing that everyone can just do. And the issue is like, you need lots of hats and you see this in any sort of startup, but it's like, I'm diving into this and I'm the CEO, I'm the programming team, I'm the design team, I'm doing most of the artwork, I'm certainly the technical art, I'm the technical design, I'm the sound design. Uh, Like you start to like the list goes on and on and on of all these hats and it's on one side seems crazy and you start to have a lot of issues where, uh, especially in the AAA bigger budget stuff, there's a lot of pigeonholing. So you get a guy who's a really good programmer, but he has no management experience or no real management experience, or he's certainly not prepped to be a CEO, or uh, you have a designer who doesn't know how to do production grade programming or a programmer on the production grade art or stuff like that. And so you start to like, and, and it really does come down to a function of each of these are often the full-time job of multiple people on a, on a product. So to have an individual go, I'm going to do all of that, like usually that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and right. it's a, it, it takes a very specific skill sets, a lot of discipline, a very specific project to succeed. And that's the solo dev side, but it's not that much different when you have a team of five people, you still have a lot of like shared responsibility and, and, and pieces and the, the multiple hats, like not everyone can do that. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's not just talking myself, like uh, on Tragic Kingdom, one of the biggest assets there is Jerry. He's been awesome. He's doing the art direction, the level design, and the combat design. Those are generally three completely radically different disciplines, right? And it adds stress. It adds stress that like artist Jerry is not able to achieve this thing because he's busy focusing on combat design. There's only so much attention to go around. But the strength of that interdisciplinary side is the bandwidth between those virtual departments is absurdly high. And so it's a, you could also look at it as my level design team, my art, like 3D art team and the combat team have the best communication in the world. And the net result is we have like a layout that makes a lot of sense for this combat, which is factored into the environment, and then the art makes it sing. So it can be very, very powerful when used appropriately, but it's also a stress point, and it does stress like the limits of our ability and attention. Also, another potential risk, because you've got such a tightly integrated team, if you needed to replace somebody, if somebody decided to move on to another project or whatnot, or that life change, or you know, fall under a bus, heaven forbid, it, it won't be as easy just to swap in another piece of Lego, because you're looking for a very particular kind, almost like a co-founder mentality in some ways, right? You want people on your team as part of the small band to be themselves very entrepreneurial so that they're all moving at the same cadence. So hard to find that kind of person or that kind of talent. Maybe I'm going to suggest that might be wrong. It might be harder to find such people in a place like Edmonton, which again, for those who are listeners who may not know, is in northern Alberta. It's not known to be a tech hub. Does that give you a bit of pause? Like the idea that, hey, we've got this really well-crafted machine, but it's really hard to get spare parts. Um, there's a reason that critical personnel insurance is part of our production budget. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that makes sense, um, uh, for, for very valid reason. Edmonton's better than average, I would say, because you have the university does a really good job for the programming and Bioware has been a pretty good hub. So there's, there's a surprising amount of capability on the programming side. But in terms of like the general um, game dev, there's holes. So yeah, I, I would see it's less about the location and more about it is a pretty specific skill set. And there is a bus factor mentality. Although I, I would argue that from what I've seen, I can't stand the career matrix. Everyone is the same. Swap them out. That, that just boils my blood. And maybe I'm reacting to this as a professional unicorn because I've always been a designer, programmer, interdisciplinary, right? I've kind of done both careers in parallel by sheer force of will, which I, I wouldn't recommend, but it, it has some <laughs> advantages. But one of the stress points I've always had is it's kind of like, well, are you a programmer? Or are you a designer? If you're a programmer, you should be doing these things and not those things. If you're a designer, you should be doing these things and not programming. And, and it took a while for Series Labs to kind of fit that. And there was always sort of that stress. Mm. There, there's very much this idea of this is a programmer task. This is an art task. But I, I, well, I, I don't know if there's a, a, this is my critique on the industry as a whole, but I, I feel that distinction is arbitrary and kind of garbage. Every one of my teams, it's a, fine, I've got five programmers, and every one of them has major idiosyncrasies and differences, and this guy can exceed really well at these sort of tasks. This guy would fail at those tasks, but would exceed very well at these tasks. And to me, working around that, structuring that, setting the team up to succeed, like that's how we had some very small teams achieve amazing stuff for Sirius. And... uh, I don't know. I feel the push for, no, it's a programmer task. All programmers can handle it. It really is a disservice to everyone.
This podcast is being brought to you by the folks at Shred Capital. At Shred Capital, we're looking for ferocious startups and fearless founders that are taking their first or ideally their second swing at a game-changing new venture. We provide business optimization consulting. We provide non-dilutive financing. We provide a shoulder to cry on, and we want to lead, seed, or syndicate your first equity investment. So check us out, Shred Capital. That's at shredcapital.com or Shred Capital at any of your favorite social media platforms. Well, it's it's interesting because, uh, in a sense, you've got a third hat now, which is founder, which is operator. People in the you know tech space and the startup space, they often talk about the advantages of having a technical founder because they can roll up their sleeves and build the MVP themselves, and they can translate their vision more with more fidelity, more immediacy into the product that the end user comes into contact with. And there's early stages, there seem to be advantages with that approach. And then later, how do you scale that out and add the the business component, perhaps, uh, to to buttress that? But, you know, again, in your case, it might be, you may want to consider this, Andrew, that your approach is, in fact, a living critique of the business practices from the mainstream industry. And, you know, I think many disruptors come from that mental space. Like, there is a way to do this better, and they won't listen. There's a way to do this faster, and they won't add that piece. So you may want to think about, you know, your work as being that living critique of a business that maybe is due for a bit of a shakeup. It it very much is like that's that's why it's a why why do we found something new other than like a legal entity to uh, wrap this IP like I love I love Sirius I love the people and it's not like they're better than most it's a I've seen what the AAA looks like I've seen what the industry default looks like and it's a we can do better we can take the parts that succeeded extraordinarily well for projects like Crane and let's do more of that and. Uh, and, and it's nice. Technical founders are scary, uh, saying that as one of them. I'm thankful that my mentors have been both on the technical side, but also on the business side. And so guys like Kelly Morstadt, Ken McLean, Jim Colvin, these guys have been awesome. And like, I've learned so much. And so the big one jumping into this is not the technical ability, but to have the technical ability and then kind of being comfortable to be that CEO, being comfortable to get out there and talk about it, being comfortable to hire, fire, work with, manage people, the whole like set the team up to succeed, those sort of pieces. Because it's it's very easy to just focus on building the MVP and being a terrible manager. You hear that cliche all, all the time, right? And uh, I, I'm hopefully better than average. Um, we'll see. I think I'm a better programmer than a manager, but at least uh, at least I know enough to see and have some training there and have some experience there. I think it is harder for technical people to make that mental shift. I remember at my first startup, crunch time, getting close to launch, We'd scaled from 8 to 80 people in no time, and we were all feeling the pressure, and I was the head biz dev guy. I went into the office of our head tech guy saying, hey, we have this meeting with investors, and I looked, and he was like hunched over the keyboard, and I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I just got to finish coding up this chat client. I'm like, you have bigger things to do right now, but to his mind, he was the best programmer, so he was making a choice to build this feature the way it's supposed to be built. But at that time, it's like, no, we have to, you got to think differently. We got to break that connection in your head because we can't grow unless you're able to do these other things now, which is a lot of the curve for tech guys. Tech guys have a lot of tools. Maybe they have an advantage. Maybe they've got a few more tools than the average bear. But the mentality and shifting and knowing how to move things around, that is tricky. Uh, One other trick, which I think you've probably had to either figure out, like I've got a plan for this, or you don't and you hope it doesn't come up, I'm not really sure, but because of the way you've structured your studio, it must be a concern around burndown. 
like what the runway looks like because you're working in such a particular way with such a long horizon, small team that mistakes can compound. And if they're compounding against your available capital, you know, you might see, you know, the walls closing in Indiana Jones style out at month 18 or month 20 in your development cycle and not having all that extra flex or not being able to accelerate, you know, throw people at the problem. Does that tension kind of lurk in the background sometimes when you're looking ahead at this next project and thinking there's a lot of unknowns between now and month 24. How, how do I know I can kind of keep crossing those bridges? Uh, it, it is a concern, but I, I would actually say it's a relatively minor one. Um, the big reason is you, you have the usual, there, there's runway, there's only finite resources, et cetera. But the closer the iteration loop, the fewer stakeholders on the project, the more they're on the same page, the more power you have to be flexible and to adjust things and to kind of steer it, it into something. So it's a lot easier for me to kind of go, you know what, let's tweak the scope and do something half as big than it is when you have the inertia of different departments and teams and those sort of things. I've also seen they throw money at it and generally make things worse. Um, <laughs> and, and now this might be a reflection of my own scar tissue, like where we'd have projects and things would get stressed. I was the fixer for many a year, right? So it's kind of like, yep, things went wrong because things do. And whether that's the client, whether that's management, whether that's personalities, whatever, things went wrong. And now it's like, oh no, how do we get it back on track? And then Andrew comes in for a couple of months and cool, project's now back on track, client's happy, everything's good. And so that, that's that been kind of the crucible by which I learned a lot of this. And so mm. to me, one of the philosophies in this is I don't want to be the fixer who has to come in and fix it, but it's like, what if we have that lens on it the entire time? It's not about this thing's not going to get off track. It's more about, you know what, we can steer that track. Like, why do we need that track? Let's just go mm. on a highway and you know what, we don't have enough gas to get to here. Let's change your destination a bit. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about is kind of a, a bit of like scope change and you have the authority and means to do that for all kinds of reasons, which is good because you're avoiding a lot of the traditional gatekeepers and channel partners. And then you can almost do, it seems, like mini surges because of the studio structure and the capability of the team you can do almost periodic surges. But at the same time, I know you've spoken to me in the past about the importance of lifestyle and balance and not emulating some of those long-term or even medium-term destructive practices of the bigger studios, like the long pre-factored overtime, the extended burns, and the resulting burnout. Yep. I, I have a extraordinarily atypically high tolerance for burnout, and that's a terrible thing. Um, and uh, I, I'm just coming in off, we we finished our, our demo, uh, we're, we're sending this out to publishers here, this is for, for Tragic Kingdom, so proud of the results, so happy with the result, but it was one of these, like this was, a, there were a lot of hours here this last little bit, and a, a I, I will definitely admit that none of that was healthy or correct. Um, what I do think is a little bit interesting is comparing that to having done similar, because we, we've all had some of these pushes, and like, there's a big difference between a, everything is on fire. They've known about the fire for like three months and somehow didn't do anything about it. And now I have like eight days to fix it because something's already like in transit. And if it's not working right. by the end of it, it's an existential crisis. So it's like that level of stress sucks. The, wow, this is 
the sum of everything that I've worked with my dream team on for the last nine months. I want this to be the best possible. I want this to get the best response. You know what? We have that piece. And if it was just that little bit here, it would actually, that, that has some real value in it. And like, you know what? Ah, can we push that extra little bit further? And I, I do find that incredibly validating. So I, I, I don't know. This, this has been a bit of a fun ride this last little bit, but I, yeah. I definitely would say not healthy. Well, I think we, we, better... all like, we all like stretching, but no one wants to be on the rack, you know? Like you don't want to be forcibly stretched. Like I've been in those situations where you want to reach a little further and you're so glad you did. But I think what you're responding to and rejecting is this idea that that's the way it is, guys, which you have to do in the game industry or in the kind of the more pure tech startup industry, we lionize the founders that are sleeping under their desks, that go a week without a shower. It becomes kind of part of this theater of the startup CEO. That You have to have that on your background to be considered real and authentic and credible. But I think it's healthy to see kind of more seasoned people trying to reject that persona and find a different path. Because there are different paths. We, there's a reason you have to do it the way that we've been doing it, except that that's the way we've been doing it. I think to me, the key one is a one I don't ever want to ask that type of crunch of people. And if I ever do put in those sort of hours, much like I did this last week, it's a I want to do it because I feel like I want to, not because it's a I'm forced to. Um, but we'll see. I think the this this will be a very interesting one because like if you compare that to curve space, the so curve space, the peak stress was dealing with some of the technical console stuff, the just weird esoteric technology that wasn't working right on a deadline. And that was brutal. But like the launch was technically boring. People are like, what are you doing for post-launch support? We, we had one bug that barely slipped through and uh, we, we fixed it and patched it on PS5 and it's good. <laughs> Otherwise, it's it's stable. The feedback from Maximum Games, like the producer, I got a letter of recommendation where he's saying this is the cleanest game he's ever worked on, right? And it's a that that's how like a good launch should be a boring launch. So I I I, I don't want to see crunch and churn at the launch of Tragic Kingdom and whatever comes next and whatever comes next. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised to see. Stretching, as you say, as we get to that kind of like, okay, here's that publisher pitch one, here's that trade show demo or something. And and, and we'll see. I think there's there's a couple of factors that I'd tweak differently to not put such a push. But it it it's weird because like on my side, one of the big reasons I want to is we have an amazing team who's put some amazing content together. And if just a little bit more effort on my side, I can celebrate what they have and make it sing and make the product better and possibly move the needle towards funding and publishing, well, well, how could I not, right? And it's a, I stand by my decisions, but also a, I, I know that's not a very healthy answer. No, 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 not far from it. Uh, it's interesting. Like on the one hand, you know, you sound quite unflappable as a startup CEO. And I think that might be in part because you've set some very firm boundaries and you play in that space, right? And that probably gives you a sense of mastery and competence because you've controlled the conditions, Right? You're not worried about how to manage a 200-person team. Even if you were fully capable of doing that, you've made the rule set better correspond to the game you want to play. I mean, you sound unflappable. For all I know, you spend half the day in a corner in the fetal position screaming into a pillow. I don't know. Uh, what would you suggest then for other founders, maybe first-time founders, that don't have a built-in Polish sense of stoicism and calm? What are techniques or something you might suggest to them to keep things manageable within whatever their parameters look like as individuals? I I have 
so much and I can talk for hours on this. The first one is get experience, get mentors, and don't just dive headfirst into it. I've seen so many students where it's like, cool, I graduated from university. I'm now going to found my own like 20, 30 person game company because that seems like a good number. No, you're not. Right. It's not going to work. Right. So there's a a having having some experience working with people like it's a a lot of our project management i based off what i learned from uh, neil vaney um who i believe now currently or uh, at least was running like software development for pcl and like that's really helped shape a lot of things there's a lot of structure on how i approach programming that i i thank steve ladke for and that really helps set us up for success in a product that's testable stable modular enough those sort of pieces from Jerry, who I have the fortune of being able to work with, where it's really understand the requirements, do the pre-work, invest up front so that the rest goes smooth. So there's lots of pieces. But I think there's one on the management side that I'd, I'd put above all, and it's the idea of the prioritized backlog. And this is what I always work really well with with Neil. And having that literally written down is good, but it's the understanding all the things that could go in and the relative priority thereof. And to me, the priority is a function of the value to the end product and the difficulty to make it and the risk that it provides. So if you have something that's not overly valuable, it's nice to have, but it's trivial and safe, well, that'll probably bubble up faster just at the same time that something difficult and tedious and risky, but is absolutely must have, will be at the top of the list. And you can almost see it, this beautiful churn of ideas and concepts and like clockwork stuff bubbles up to the top and that's what we want to do stuff settles out in the middle and maybe one day it'll it'll become actionable and then stuff settles to the bottom and it's nice to go it's like right that idea yeah we're not doing it it's not necessary and that's so huge and that's really at the heart of the managing scope and it's always the what makes the most sense for us to do given the current context of where we are and not just doing stuff because it's supposed to be done or because it's a task or something, but the really reevaluating what are we supposed to be doing? Why are we doing it? What, what needs to be done? And that ends up surprising me. And that's how we get like CurveSpace. The end feature set for CurveSpace, certainly not what I planned at the beginning, but it works. It makes sense. It's There you go. And uh, it's a good philosophy. So the last question I'll leave you with, just because we're up against our time, but I'd love to come back when you've got more news on Tragic Kingdom. And that is the game Tragic Kingdom, not the classic Sky album by No Doubt from the 90s. How, what's it like working with your life partner, your wife in this case? I mean, obviously, for some people, that sounds, again, like the fairy tale. That's the dream. Everything is completely wrapped up in one lovely tissue. And we all have complete connection to the work, no alienation. And I look to the left of me, there's a friend. I look to the right of me, there's my wife. Are you able to separate the two things? Like, you're able to kind of say, hey, listen, you know, we're in workspace now, and we don't want to let that overflow and contaminate our non-workspace. Or do you just look at it, it's a whole piece of cloth. It's holistic. It's part of the fabric of our relationship that now operates on many levels. It's definitely the the holistic, I, I, I would say. There, there's stresses. And there's a couple of times where I've, I've had to like invoke, like, well, we, we, some of the hats, right? Like it's the, there's a difference between CEO interacting with creative director than there is between Andrew and Jen, husband and wife, right? And so sometimes acknowledging those hats is good. But what I, I truly love about it is the biggest, most stressful, complicated, the things that's occupying most of our attention, not to mention that has like the stakes of like, 
this is this is our livelihood and then it's paying the bills and paying the mortgage and all of these things so to have all of that be this thing that we are intimately connected on and understand and talk about regularly it's it's actually that's that's really brought closer i i i, I love that I love that we're able to sync up and, and, and share and talk about these things. And it's been amazing watching her grow in the creative space. I've been fortunate enough to be doing this for, for a lot of time, but uh, to actually watch her sort of sink her teeth into it. So I, I like definitely no regrets. And I, I love, love working with Jen on this. It's been amazing. I, I think if there's a downside, and this I, I, I look to on my own, it's you can be different with people you are completely comfortable with, where there is no mask, there is no filter, right? And it's tough because it's like I, I, I find myself having to try and be careful with that because if things are stressful and all these various things, right? Like it's a there's there's the you know what. We are confident. We got that air of confidence. We are getting that project over the finish line. CEO Andrew, we got this, right? Like that's that's that aura you project that you have to and, and believe it and all these sort of things, right? But it gets a little bit dangerous when uh, you have someone who sees that curled up in the fetal position in the corner moment, right? Um, and, and how do you handle that? But outside of that, no regrets. I really, truly enjoy working with Jen and working with close friends all around and a, I've, I've heard that like, oh, I could never work with my spouse. Ken and I've been always collaborating on one thing or another. And it's just, to me, that's beautiful. That's great. Well, listen, we may have to put a pin in it there. It sounds like a great fairy tale. I don't think we found the monster. To be honest with you, it seems like you, you've hit a good formula here. And, you know, we'd love to have you back either when you've got something on Tragic Kingdom or when you you, you find a monster. <laughs> You're like, whoa, monster. If you, want, if you want to talk about that, that'd be great. But Envious, I think you've got something great going there, Andrew. And uh, again, if you haven't checked out Curved Space yet, this would be a great time. It's available apparently everywhere right now. And uh, go have a look. And then can they get any teasers on Tragic Kingdom yet, Andrew? Or is that still a bit under wraps? Yeah, if you check out our Twitter, um, actually we're at Only by Midnight on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, oh. all of these places, but most yeah. active on Twitter. By the way, there's another hat to have to wear at a small team is the marketing team. Of course. <laughs> but uh, checking us out on Twitter, I believe our pinned tweet right now is a tease for Tragic Kingdom. And it is this really fun action RPG. It's a world made of paper with this man made of paper, his dog made of ink. Everything is this crazy, flat, surreal style. Um, Jen can describe it a lot better than I can. And there's a tease up there right now. And uh, it's really cool. If Curve's cool. Place was playing to my strengths, Tragic Kingdom plays to the strengths of just my incredible dream team and uh, Jen's awesome creative vision. Cool. We'll put all those links in the description for the pod. Andrew, thanks a ton. Lovely talking with. And again, we, we hope to have you back soon to hear the next chapter in the fairy tale. So that's it. Thanks again for you for listening. Join us again next week where we're going to talk more about what scares startups that may not be quite as zen as Andrew Janetsky is. Take care. So there you go. And I must say, I find every startup founder to be somewhere on the heroic scale. No one does this stuff lightly, not if they're in their right mind. And certainly I think that Andrew brings it an entirely new level to the game by working specifically with his friends and his family and indeed his wife on these projects. Because, and I think Bruce and Mike, you can agree with me, that's a whole new level of excitement when you have things that close. 
you know, you can't turn off the office entirely when it's that tightly woven into your life. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, yourself being kind of entrepreneurial and being kind of artistic and having a, a life partner that also fits that bill. I mean, can you imagine that kind of reality working well? Or would that just be a minefield that none of us would venture into without a great deal of trepidation? Well, it's interesting, and you describe it a few times over the course of your discussion with Andrew as a bit of a fairy tale situation. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's because he's gotten lucky or if it's because he's managed to structure things in a way that is different from what you normally hear. I mean, you always hear, don't go into business with your friends or especially with your partner or any of those things, just because, as you mentioned, turning work mode off and turning personal life on can be a challenge for people. But I think okay. it's interesting, like Andrew mentions, that, you know, in some ways he finds it easier because she understands the stresses that he's got going on and he understands the stresses that she has going on and feels like they're able to support each other in a much more profound way which is clearly rare because you hear about that less but refreshing to hear that they've managed to strike that balance yeah you know i mean i've, I've tried it i can't do it you know I, I think i need not just you know little traffic cone barriers between those parts of my life i think i need like the great wall of china separating those parts of my life for it to work at all. I mean, more power to them that they pull it off and whatnot. And maybe that is a path to deeper and better insights. I'd be curious, but certainly who am I to say? Like a happy home life and a happy work life have to coexist. And then as Andrew kind of puts it, it's, it's all right there. There's a gigantic degree of transparency, shared sacrifice, shared rewards. And of course, you know, life is a journey. They're taking it together. And this is one part that they've woven in. And, you know, I, if they can make this work on any kind of scale, my God, more power to them, uh, especially these days. So that's it. That's all we have today. Thank you so much for being part of it. Thanks to Andrew C. and his team. And we'll be checking with those folks, I'm sure, later on in the new year, talking about the progress they're making with their company, with their games, and with their intertwined lives. So that's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, so that will do it. We don't got next. The pod is done for the day. We'd like to thank our guest. We'd like to thank producer Mike in the control room for all of his thoughts and feedback and wisdom, as well as his technical skills. This was What Scares Startups, a pod that explores the neuroses, the anxieties, the formless things that go bump in the night for startups and founders and investors throughout this tech ecosystem. Whether you're in Silicon Valley, New York, or Saskatoon, it's a common shared neuroses that we're all working very hard to overcome. So you can check us out online, wherever good podcasts are found. And if you want to check out our sponsors at Shred Capital, that is shredcapital.com and found on all your favorite social platforms, your LinkedIn's, your Facebook's, your Twitter's. We tweet, we share. Hopefully you come back for the next episode. And if you have an idea or especially neurotic founder you'd like us to talk with, Please get in touch. That's all.